Hi everyone, you're in a click with me, your host, Jamili. My guest today is Sarah Wachter-Betcher, a coach, strategist, facilitator, author, and speaker dedicated to changing design and tech for good, and to help you build the radical, courageous leadership practices your organization needs. About two and a half years ago, I read Sarah's book titled Technically Wrong, Sexist Apps, Biased Algorithms, and Other Threats of Toxic Tech, and it changed the angle of vision for my research. I learned so much from her and couldn't wait to learn more, so I asked her to come on the show. Without further ado, here is Sarah Wachterbetcher. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to do this. So I just want to start by talking about your background and your experiences as a content strategist and how that propelled you towards the career you have now. So tell us your story, Sarah. How did you get to where you are today? Okay. There's, there's a lot of twists and turns. Um, <laughs> I would say that I originally thought I was going to be a writer, some kind of writer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know what that looked like or what that meant. I studied journalism and I cared about writing. And as I started um, after college, I started you know looking for jobs and trying to get work and trying to figure out what that meant. I ended up kind of stumbling into a copywriting job, which I fundamentally hated but which along the way led me into web writing. And I learned a lot about UX and information architecture. And suddenly I found this kind of budding discipline of content strategy. Mm. And in that time, what I really learned was that I'm also just a, I'm a very strategic person. I like being involved in strategy conversations. I facilitate a lot of strategy discussions. My brain is always thinking about underlying strategic questions and I spent a really long time not realizing that other people's brains don't necessarily do that, that that was maybe something special or different. And so um, that led me into this career as a content strategist. And I ended up being a consultant for a number of years. So um, quitting my last job in like 2011 and then working on my own. And I loved everything about that. But then over time, as the tech industry matured around me and you started getting more and more money being pumped into Silicon Valley, I started noticing more and more problems. I started noticing more and more ethical consequences of technology, design decisions that could harm people, ways we were building exclusion into the products we were creating. And I started getting more and more concerned about what it was that I was working on and the companies that I was working with and sort of what it all meant. And, and it led me down a path of sort of exploring that. And that's really where my writing started to turn. So I had started out, you know, writing for other people who did what I do and trying to help them like, here's how to do this one facet of content strategy, or here's how to do this UXE thing. And I started moving from that into talking about these sorts of issues, sort of the systemic cultural issues within the industry and ended up getting really deeply embedded there and and writing more about it. And so uh, that led me down this path of then sort of shaking up everything I do and really thinking about what is it that I think this field needs now? What does it need next? And what I came to was that one of the things we need, I don't think this is the only thing, but one of the things, and one of the things that I I felt really strongly about for myself was that we needed to have a really different perspective on what it looks like to be a leader in this field, Mm -hmm. because so much of the models of leadership that we see coming out in tech and design are like Silicon Valley VCs or something. And what, what we create from that is this like 
super narrow view of what it is we should be doing with ourselves that doesn't really take into account other humans. It isn't really concerned with a greater good. And meanwhile, you see all of these macro problems like inequality and healthcare in the United States mm-hmm. and climate change and like all of these things that are happening that we almost divorce from our working lives. Mm-hmm. Um, if we just sort of go along with what we think leadership is based off of what like you know, five white guy VCs in Harvard Business Review tell us. And so I started thinking a lot about what I could bring to that. And that's what really led me here. I've also noticed this kind of co-opting of social justice language in corporations that don't necessarily implement these elements of social justice that are actually necessary to propel us in the right direction. So I I found that your book was really useful in terms of just kind of identifying Mm. what that actually, what it actually means to be social justice oriented. So thank you for that. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. I think it's interesting to see social justice be in some ways normalized mm-hmm. and yeah and taken up as sort of like a mantle within an organization like to see i don't know like every pride float that every big corporation needs to right. have now mm-hmm. and to think like yeah but what are you actually doing day to day and like what stakes are you willing to have like what skin is, what skin do you have in this game and right. oftentimes the answer is none, right? It's like, it's very safe and comfortable to have a pride float. It is a lot less safe and comfortable if you're, say, a social media platform to then de-platform people who hate speech. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, you're, you're willing to put some money into a pride float, but you're not willing to do any of the harder things that might have an impact on your actual product. Right. At face value, it looks great, but is it actually making difference? You know, that's right. And for me, I started finding that so hollow and frustrating and sad. Mm. And I want more people to not sort of be convinced by something as shallow as, you know, the pride float or whatever it is, right? Mm. Like you have this one day a year where you, you know, celebrate like black women's history, for example, within your company. And it's like, yeah, but what are you actually doing to sustain black women within your company the rest of the year? Right, absolutely. And the answer is often very little. Very little. Yeah, there there do seem to be a lot of misconceptions about the process of how tech products are designed and how algorithms are programmed and how marketing schemes are developed, I think from the inside of companies, but also from the outside. And so I have to admit that prior to reading your book, Technically Wrong, um, I was also quite ignorant. So it shined a light on a lot of different <laughs> things for me and helped me to open my eyes to different things so I could mm. kind of critically analyze the things I was consuming a bit better. Um, so could you walk us through how tech industry bias and blind spots get baked into digital products and cause harm and inequity so that we all just have a better idea of what's going on around us. Gosh, that's a really huge question. Yeah. I mean, it's like an entire, <laughs> the it's entire a, book. book. <laughs> um, I think that there are two kind of big areas that we could look at. One of them is around business models, company priorities. What is it that companies sort of think they're doing? And there's some, there's some stuff in there that can feel at times difficult to to cope with because you feel a little bit powerless because it has to do with things like, well, we are maximizing shareholder value. And if you're a publicly traded company in the current moment we are living in, that is something that you are obligated to do. And so it is difficult to see how you could change things, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I think happens a lot for folks is that they get stuck there and they think, well, then I can't really do anything. Or they think that Um, they would have to be sort of like 
only railing against the business model in order to make change. And I think business models are a massive, massive problem. Yes, you can, there's so much you cannot fix within tech without looking at business models. Like how, how is it that we make money? You know, if you look at the way, for example, Facebook makes money, Mm. it is all based off of advertising. And that is all based off of getting you to look at as much content as you possibly can so that they can hyper target you with advertising. And have a huge amount of data about you. And the more data they have about you, the more they can target advertising to you, the more they can do with that data. And so they're only incentivized to gather more about you at all times. And so it's really hard to start looking at like, what do I do about that? If you are only looking at it at that sort of like big picture lens, because the incentives that they have are very much around maximization. Yeah, I just want to add, I read your book and I deleted my Facebook account. I felt so... (laughs) I felt yeah. like I didn't know what to do and I felt like I was a bit powerless and I also felt like I didn't need it, you know? I just didn't need it. Yeah, anymore. and I think that there's um I think that there's lots of good reason to do that. And I also admit that I haven't done it and I haven't done it for a few reasons mm-hmm. because it's like this artery that connects me to people who are otherwise hard to stay connected to right. and and yet I think about it all the time and I don't, right. I, I don't use it much, but I do know that they're still collecting all this data about me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other side is around what are the design decisions and tech decisions that people are making that are encoding biases within the things that they're creating. Right, exactly. And so that can be a lot of different things. That might be something like developing a product that is giving you customized results or sort of like optimizing your information using an algorithm. So that's going to be looking at past data, taking that past data to make a prediction about the future. Right. And to do that, um, an algorithm is really trying to understand what does it think you are or you what you need is. So it's making a, an assumption, right? So it's making an assumption based off of some kinds of information. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that a lot of algorithms are built off of data that is not representative of you or that is that is only indicative of the past, like a biased past and not the future. So for example, if you are making decisions for things like what kinds of credit might be available to people or housing might be available to people and you only rely on historical data and historically speaking, we have had huge biases against, let's say, Black Americans Mm -hmm. um, who were trying to buy homes, then you are going to take that same bias and you're going to recreate it into the future decisions. And you see that a lot when it comes to algorithmic products within all kinds of areas, but particularly the financial services industry, um, policing, and um, Mm -hmm. like criminal justice applications. Um, The policing algorithms are really shocking to me in your book. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you start start to realize is that anytime we are using an algorithm or anytime, anytime you like read about software that says, oh, this uses the algorithm to predict X or Mm -hmm. Y. And what they're trying to predict is something about people. Mm -hmm. Then you have to, you have to think, oh, that fundamentally means they are using the past to predict the future. And in fact, it's not just predict, predict the future. You're using the past to create the future. Right. Exactly. So for example, when it comes to something like um, a policing algorithm, There's software that will do things like identify where police should put more resources to fight crime based off of where more crime has existed in the past. Mm -hmm. So if you live in a neighborhood that is quote unquote high crime, then police are more likely to come there more often because they are expecting crime to happen there. But the problem that you run into is that historically there are neighborhoods that have been over-policed 
mm-hmm. not because they actually have a higher rate of crime, but because they're where people who aren't white and people who are more uh, low income live. And so if you have biased decisions that led to over-policing of that neighborhood, then they will have higher incidences of crime reported in the past because that's where the police were. Like they saw more crime because they were there, not because there actually is. Right. And then that gets built into the software. So the same biased decisions that police were using just on their own become codified and become normalized. And there's a, there's a distancing that happens, right? So you, you end up being alienated from the actual biased decision that because you're not making it anymore. Now the algorithm is making it for you. Mm-hmm. And so you're thinking that it's neutral. It's easier to tell yourself that it's neutral but it's not neutral. It's just reliant on that same data. And so it reinforces the bias that existed because you can tell yourself it's neutral and it's telling you, go back to that neighborhood, that high crime neighborhood. And lo and behold, you go back to that neighborhood looking for crime and you find the crime that you also actually would have found in an affluent white neighborhood, but you weren't there. Yeah. I think that there's like a, a misconception and a blind trust of algorithms because we think that they are neutral and unbiased, but they are all programmed by a, by humans who intentionally or unintentionally do inscript these algorithms. And I think that one of the things that I have seen happen over and over again when talking about this with sort of the general public um, is that when you say something like algorithm, mm. And people don't know exactly what that is, but they know it's kind of technical or mathy. Mm-hmm. There's like a shutting down that often happens where they are like, oh, yeah, 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 that algorithms. It's a little bit of a black box, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what does that really mean? What's actually happening? And because you don't understand the computer science and because the people who do understand the computer science often treat you like an idiot if you don't understand the computer exactly. science. Exactly, yes. Um, then, then you you kind of like don't think about it that much because mm-hmm. it's easier to just sort of think of it as some some process running in the background that's probably doing a good job and you, you don't have to worry about it, right? Exactly. And it's not that you need to understand the computer science. It's just that you need to understand the basics of what's happening here, which is to say an algorithm is just a series of steps, right? It's just It's just a program that's saying, run these series of steps and make these decisions and it's looking at data and it's trying to find patterns, right? Mm. And if you feed it bad data, you get bad information. And if you feed it biased data, you get biased information. And if you feed it incomplete data, you get incomplete information. Mm. And that's a huge one. You know, we've got all of this um, technology coming out that's getting better and better at things like uh, facial recognition and image processing. And we can talk about that from a surveillance perspective, which is huge. Um, mm-hmm. But even just thinking about there are useful facets of this too. And there right. are many, many useful facets of facial recognition. And a lot of the products that are created for facial recognition were created largely from data sets of faces that were white faces right. and tested on faces that were also white faces and actually have much, much, much higher failure rates and many more problems Um, which can create security issues, which can create um, like just product failure issues, which can create sort of inherent bias issues when they're used by people of color. Mm. And that can actually even be magnified in a surveillance perspective too, where, I mean, I'm I'm generally against the use of facial recognition and surveillance, but, um, but there are people who will say like, well, it's great. You know, it's, it's good that, that facial recognition can't identify you know, black faces as well, because we don't want to be surveilled. Right. But the reality is you're being surveilled anyway. And when the product doesn't work as well for people of color, it can also lead to more 
misrecognition of people, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it doesn't actually help anyone that the product is also biased. Um, and the application is what I would say unethical. Absolutely. Right. I, I want to just switch gears slightly to, yeah. um, uh, there's a chapter in your book that where you chat a lot about um, culture fit in organizations. And given that you work in that field specifically, I think yeah. it might be important for you to shed light on kind of like the intricate details of how this culture fit actually works and where we're actually seeing these divides in culture and gender in organizations. Yeah. And so what I, what I talk a lot about is the way that tech companies tend to talk a big game about increasing the diversity of their staff and send out big reports every year about how they went from like 12% women in technical roles to 14% women in technical roles (laughs) and they throw themselves a party. And it's kind of like you repeat the cycle over and over again. And when you look at the bigger picture though, what you end up seeing is things like, well, yes, but we are not seeing those women progress into leadership. Or yes, we are seeing more diverse um, junior employees coming in, but we are not seeing them make their way up the ranks. Or we are seeing a high attrition rate of all of the black women that we've hired, uh, even though we threw ourselves a big party for hiring so many of them in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that comes down to very narrow and implicitly and explicitly enforced norms around who fits in these organizations. And so that's where the culture fit piece comes in. In a lot of companies, they have talked about culture fit as a positive thing. Like we're looking for someone who's a good culture fit. Right. And, 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 and I can totally understand that, right? Like that's not, that doesn't sound bad on its face and there's good reasons for it in the mm-hmm. sense that you want people you can get along with. You don't want to create teams that don't trust each other, right? And so mm-hmm. being able to have some sense of shared culture is valuable for that. But what you end up getting when you talk a lot about culture fit is you get monoculture. Mm-hmm. So you get this one sort of or the original culture of an organization tends mm-hmm. to be what gets recreated. And if the original culture of the organization was well, this was a startup founded by three white guys who went to Stanford together, then that's a very narrow view of what culture looks like. And so what what ends up happening on teams, often inadvertently, often without realizing it, is that because they think that their culture is good, Mm. they start looking for people who fit into it and that that are like them. Mm. And that ends up being coming from the same places, looking like them, having a lot of the same interests as them. And that's where you get the sort of like, oh, our team, you know, goes to happy hour and plays video games together. And like, we all have the same kind of hobbies and, and that can feel nice, but it's very in group. And the problem you run into is that when you start trying to have a more diverse workforce, cause you realize that you need it, or you realize that you're starting to get a lot of flack because you don't have it. Um, you try to fold people into that and mold people to that. And so what you end up doing is you're trying to pull people into this narrow thing that doesn't end up fitting them. Mm-hmm. And that's when they don't stay or they're not successful there. You mm-hmm. end up thinking like, oh, they weren't good at their job. And it's like, no, the problem wasn't that they weren't good at their job. The problem was that you wanted them to be like, you wanted them to tick all of your diversity check boxes and then also become one of you. Right. And you don't get to have both. Yeah. And uh-huh. so it's a matter of saying, you know, how are we how are we prepared to have our culture shift and change and evolve and adapt 
who would add to our culture. There's a lot of talk about a culture ad versus a culture mm. fit. So what, would, what new stuff would we get to have access to? Mm-hmm. How do you make people who come from underrepresented groups and are going to be underrepresented in an organization, how do you make them feel more welcome? How do you make them feel more included, but in a safe way, like included, but not um, forced to, to be part of things that don't make sense for them. I mean, there's a lot of ways that I think we, we can end up actually making people feel really vulnerable. Absolutely. Um, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to not fit in. They don't want to be perceived mm-hmm. as not being a team player. And at the same time, if they behave just like the in-group does, they're not going to be perceived the same. So there's all this work that has to be done. You'd think the most intelligent decision would be to have like a broad perspective of ideas and voices in that industry so that you are serving a broader population. Right. Because yeah, it I seems mean, counterintuitive. It is. And I think what, what you see, you know, when, what you see coming out of like a, you know, Silicon Valley bubble mm-hmm. is often a bunch of companies that are designed to solve problems for a really near, narrow class of people, which is people who work in Silicon Valley. Exactly. And and that are not well-equipped or well-suited to other places and other needs and other people. And that is, that's, that's incredibly limiting. And I think that there are people who are starting to try to break some of that mold for sure. Mm -hmm. But so much of the money and the the power, so much of the capital is centered in this Mm -hmm. one place that it still flows very, very strongly toward products that are like products that are by us for us kind of thing, right? Like it's like Silicon Valley products that are made for Silicon Valley people. And I think breaking that is not not something that's actually high enough on enough people's lists. I would agree with that. Yeah. And what's interesting is I read a recent study and I'm forgetting the author now, but I'll have to email you afterwards. It was a great article and it was saying that majority of women who either go into university or college or end up in a STEM related career actually end up leaving the career or the university because they don't feel comfortable or safe or respected within that space. And so oftentimes women will just um, seek education in the community and, Mm -hmm. and or become entrepreneurs which is fine, but it's just, I think it's quite telling to see that majority of women do end up stepping out of those roles because they aren't comfortable. Yeah. I think that once again, I mean, it's not bad to leave a company role and be entrepreneurial necessarily, but if you feel like you're constantly being pushed out or kept Mm -hmm. out and there's an insider outsider feel, then what you do get is a tremendous power imbalance. And I think that you are then making your own thing without all of the benefits of the network and the power structures that other people have when they're making their own thing. And so you are fundamentally stuck in a system that is reinforcing the same biases and the same structures. Yeah. It's far harder to penetrate a system without the support of a community around you. They just don't know what the solution is. Just also kind of feel a bit stuck, you know, like where do we go from here? Mm. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are feeling stuck. And I think particularly, you know, right now it feels like we're also in a moment of a lot of societal upheaval and fear and anxiety Mm -hmm. at sort of the highest levels. And I think that that all trickles down into the way we think about our work and the way we think about tech. And I feel like there are quite a lot of question marks about where we go from here at this point. Yeah, absolutely. But I do appreciate um, that you created Active Voice. I think that that's a really great extension of how to move forward. So could you tell us a little bit more about Active Voice, what it is, what you do there, um, and what inspired you to be a coach? 
Yeah. So Active Voice is sort of the latest iteration of what I do. So Active Voice Mm -hmm. is a company that focuses on leadership development and coaching for people in tech and design. Mm -hmm. And I came to that really after writing Technically Wrong, kind of doing a lot of speaking and workshops with tech companies and kind of like really being out in the community after that book came out Mm -hmm. and thinking a lot about what was next for me. Um, because, you know, so that book came out and I started, like I said, I did, you know, do the book tour, give a lot of talks, visit some colleges, start talking to tech companies, hold workshops, like how are we going to design stuff differently? And what I started really noticing was that within organizations, one of the ways that change happens is when there are enough people, sort of a groundswell of people who are willing to kind of put the brakes on or mm-hmm. say, hold on, I think we should do this a little differently or are starting to raise the same concerns. Mm-hmm. And as I was going to companies, what I noticed, I was working with a lot of design teams, UX teams, um, sometimes engineering teams, product teams. You'd get this tremendous interest and excitement to be like, yeah, we should deal with this. And people would sort of generate so many ideas about ways in which their product could be more inclusive. They would generate all these potential red flags for ways that their product might be causing harm or have bias embedded in it already. Mm-hmm. And then it would feel really hard for them to get momentum about what change was actually possible. Mm-hmm. And that's for a couple, I mean, a couple different reasons. And one of the big reasons was that they didn't always feel safe to speak up. They didn't necessarily feel like they could within that context or that they'd be heard. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I started doing with Active Voice is really thinking about how do we create spaces where people can speak up, where more voices are heard more uh, equitably and where people can um, have sort of a different way of working that is is respected and that is is incorporated into the company. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece was that There are so many people, particularly people from underrepresented groups, people who've experienced gender bias, um, who feel like they are in a double bind where they want to speak up about this stuff and almost like are expected to be kind of like representatives of their gender, of their race. Right. And yet, if they do, then they're perceived as being difficult or pushy or abrasive Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And because those, and that's very real, right? Like that's a very Very real risk. (laughs) Absolutely. And so what's happened is they can get really worn down Mm -hmm. and that's when people start to leave. And so what I also do is a lot of coaching with people to help them figure out how do they retain some of who they are and bring their voice into their work and bring their voice into their companies in ways that allow them to take some risks and to be true to themselves and to be able to stand up and step up, but also recognize that it is risky and that there is a risk to perception. And so thinking about that um, as being sort of part of being a courageous leader and also from an underrepresented group is, is that you're always weighing both, right? And so, um, and just being honest about that and kind of creating more, more opportunities for leadership development that felt a little bit more honest about how it's not just about like, ladies, find your confidence, which is where a lot of shit Uh, tries to tell women, uh, Um, like, you you know, like you just need to stand up and take it like a man or whatever. And it's like, that doesn't work. No. And so what I wanted to be able to say was that there are things you can do. There are ways that you can 
build more presence and show up more effectively at work in a way that's true to yourself. Mm -hmm. And also we need to be talking about these systems and we need to be, you know, actually asking folks who are in more powerful roles, like what are they doing to change the dynamic? And Mm -hmm. so I started just sort of like taking on all of those issues. And that's a lot of what, what I do now is um, individual coaching, team coaching, and a lot of like workshops and trainings around different topics related to, um, being a more courageous leader, being a more inclusive leader and shifting company culture. Okay. And so, um, what steps do you take to teach organizations to even just kind of begin to identify ethical blunders? Because they're just so deeply ingrained and internalized in our society and it doesn't sound like an easy job. So where in the world do you begin? I don't think that you can give people a checklist that's like, here's all of the potential ways that something could go wrong because Mm. there's always going to be new ones and there's going to be stuff that I'm going to miss, right? Right. I mean, there's going to be people who could be harmed by a decision I make that I don't realize. And Mm. so it's not about saying, here's all of the stuff you have to do. Here's all of the things to look for. It's about saying, how do we build a culture of noticing and surfacing Mm -hmm. issues? How do we build a culture of asking ourselves tough questions, Mm -hmm. asking ourselves critical questions? Right. And how do we have a process where when we're making trade-offs in the design process, because there's always going to be Mm trade-offs, that we're being honest about what those trade-offs are. And so, for example, it's getting people together to really think about, okay, where in your design process are you considering potential harms? Mm-hmm. Where in your design process are you considering the risk of not, not making this inclusive to, to lots of different groups? Mm-hmm. Where are you asking, hmm, what if we're wrong? And then also when somebody raises a flag, what happens? So what I see a lot of in, in, in tech is that there is a, a bias toward positivity almost, mm-hmm. like yeah. toward blue sky thinking and the what ifs and um, wouldn't it be cool if kind of mentality And in the product process, what that really leads to is that ideas can move forward without assumptions being checked or without problems being truly dealt with. Mm -hmm. Because people are are so focused on like the coolness or the new idea or innovation or whatever it is that they're not saying like, how could this be used to harm someone? Mm -hmm. And so I think the first thing is to really just even within your own team or just even within your own self, sit down and say, how could this be used to harm someone? What assumptions have I built into this? What am I assuming is true about my audience? What am I assuming is Mm -hmm. true about this product? And what if I'm wrong? If I'm wrong, who could be hurt by it? And it's not that that's going to catch everything. It's not that every single potential ethical flaw is going to come up or, or, you know, inclusion flaw is going to come up. But what that is going to do is to train you to ask different questions and it's going to train you to be able to look at your work a little bit more critically, look at others' work more critically in a good way, right? In a way that helps you to start to notice um, some of the typical ways that stuff goes wrong and also maybe to recognize where your gaps are. Like there's things that you maybe don't have any experience with, you're not an expert in. Mm -hmm. Expertise is the other piece of it. Sometimes I have seen organizations also try to use diverse employees as like representatives of their race or their culture. Right. Right. And, and it's, I mean, I think at some level, absolutely. If you have an actually diverse team, you are going to identify more potential problems. Mm -hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, what I also see is there will be a lot of pressure placed on 
the youngest, least powerful, least experienced women of color within an organization to raise the flag for things and and then no support if they actually do. And so I think that's entirely inappropriate, right? Like Mm -hmm. asking a 23-year-old junior designer who happens to be a woman of color to be responsible for the like diversity and inclusion of your product is entirely unfair to her Mm. and is not a safe place for her to be probably because people are so, again, biased toward the positive. They don't necessarily want to hear that from her. And also she may be somebody from a particular group, but that doesn't mean that she has expertise. And so where is the space to actually bring in people who are experts Mm. in the topics that you're working on? So If you are going to work on a product, for example, that deals with something like financial decisions and uses data like Mm -hmm. zip codes in order to predict what kinds of financial um, services people can have access to, when and how do you have somebody on the team who understands the history of redlining in the US Mm -hmm. where there were systematic uh, maps the banks were making that were preventing black people from getting mortgages. Like who knows about that? And who's, yeah. who's the one who's like actually going to ask those questions? That's an expert thing. That's not mm-hmm. a random designer thing. Then maybe you have some people who will raise some flags. But I think that what, what we have in tech is often like a devaluation of expertise that's not technical expertise, expertise right. within social sciences, expertise mm-hmm. within humanities. So do you have somebody who understands critical race theory? Do you have somebody who understands feminism? Mm-hmm. Why, why is that expertise being left out in favor of this one type of expertise? And I think that that's something that really needs to change. Absolutely. I've noticed that in my research as well. So in the education field, what really pushed me towards Mm -hmm. um, investigating how educators are integrating technology through a social justice perspective is that the biggest push in curriculum right now is about the functional skills of technology. Mm -hmm. And so if we're taught that that's what's the most important from our youngest ages, we're never taught to be then critical of what we consume, but also not taught to be critical of what we create. We're simply recreating what's already out there without being cognizant of our own biases and stereotypes. So I think that this is like, it's a giant problem that moves beyond these organizations. And like, if we can start to yeah, increase this knowledge and this information in our education system and place value on Mm. it in our education system, Mm. then maybe that's like a great, you know, (laughs) step forward. But it seems like there's lots of like different levels where we can kind of attack these issues, right? Yeah. And I think a big part of it is, um, really getting it into your, you know, into your brain and then your habits to remember that the technology that you use is not neutral, that nothing that we mm. are interacting with is neutral, right? It's all designed by people who have their own agendas and right. motives and their own biases. And so as soon as we can really approach some tech product that we're using, even if it's really cool and fun, even yeah, if it seems so helpful, even if you're like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. And to still approach it as like, and it's it's not neutral or inherently good. I think that that, that will shift the way that we look at things and use things and sort of make us a little bit more willing to, um, to ask hard questions of these companies. I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is also that we have a lot of organizations that have gotten away with not having a lot of difficult questions asked of them because 
we've been so enamored by technology. And when we're enamored by it, that also plays out in how we end up educating people around technology. We educate them around it as some sort of inherent good, mm. just like the, the technology in the classroom debates, right? It's like, that's a lot of it. That is coming down to this idea that more is definitely good. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing is that more is not necessarily better. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, so I think that it's taking a little bit of the rose-colored glasses off and being able to say, there's a lot of great things about this and also negative things. What is the actual space this is taking in my life? What's happening here? What assumptions is this reinforcing in me? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I always think of like critique as being good. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people maybe weren't raised with that perspective. To right. me, it's <laughs> normal. Um, and it's a very, in some ways, it's kind of like a, a common academic perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think everybody should have that. And sure. I fundamentally think that, that critique is really valuable. And mm. I think particularly critique the things you love. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more you love something, the more important it is to question it. And that's true for designers. That's true for the public. It's true for all of us. Mm -hmm. If we can start kind of putting pressure on tech industries about what we want as consumers, Mm -hmm. then that might also be like another step forward in terms of encouraging these companies to be more cognizant of the way that they're designing these products. So I think as consumers, it's also our role to be a bit more critical of everything that we're consuming in order to create change. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's, that's one of the only things that you can do, right? It's mm-hmm. like you can, you can be more critical, ask tougher questions. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about saying like, are you going to have Facebook or delete Facebook? Although you certainly can delete Facebook. <laughs> um, it doesn't always feel like you can, but you can. You can. Yeah. Um, and it's nice. It's freeing. <laughs> but it's, it's like, you can also, you can also have an opinion on it. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that tech has done that, that I think has been good for the tech industry and a very huge disservice for humanity is to make people feel like they don't know enough to have an opinion on it. Right. That they, they need, they need to be an engineer to have an opinion on it. And that's not true. No, you're absolutely right. Um, so my last question for you on the show, uh, we play a game. It's called hot fire film the blanks. I start the sentence and you finish it. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. If, uh, if I had a magic power, it would be, if I had a magic power, it would be, to know what people actually need from me, even when they can't tell me. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, wouldn't that be remarkable? <laughs> um, so something I'm working on that no one would expect me to be working on. I'm pretty open about the things I work mm-hmm. on. You know, I think something that, that surprises people <laughs> that I'm working on is when I is, is sort of talking publicly about my work in a different way. Like I'm very used to talking about my ideas, but when it comes to talking to people about like working with me explicitly, like I would like to work with you company Mm. for somebody who's worked for herself for a really long time and has been on a lot of stages. That is a much harder conversation for me still. So I'm still working on that. Okay. That's great. Thank you. And then one way to shine light online. One way to shine light online. Mm -hmm. So like we were talking about like the lights and shadows of digitization. So what is one way that we can shine light online? I think one way we can shine light online hmm, might be to, I think going back to what we were talking about, you know, allow yourself to ask tough questions. You're, you don't have to know everything about tech. You don't have to be technical. I think being quote unquote technical is kind of, um, a fake distinction anyway. And so make yourself ask questions, make it a habit to ask questions. And I think that that 
those questions shine light where it needs to be shown. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sarah. And if our yeah. listeners want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, you can go to activevoicehq.com and that has all the information about my company. You can reach me there or at sarahwb.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I'd love to hear what you think and anything more or less that you'd like to learn about. Comment here or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jamilee.baroud. J-A-M-I-L-E-E dot B-A-R-O-U-D. Until next time, shine light online and I'll talk to you soon.